Hmm. I'm going to begin with a little reference to an article. Some of you may know this, may have read this in the fall, Inquiring Mind, this last fall. Imagine some of our earliest mammal ancestors, little rodent-like creatures scurrying about in the shadows of the last dinosaurs, the ones that became absorbed in the pleasant sensations of a good meal, a warm rock, sweet-smelling flowers, crunch. (laughs) They got eaten because they missed the sound of a slither nearby. The ones that lived to pass on their genes were nervous and jumpy quick to notice potential threats and to remember painful experiences. That same circuitry is active in your brain today, in the amygdala, the hippocampus, and related structures. The brain is hardwired to scan for the bad, and when it inevitably finds negative things, they get stored immediately and made available for rapid recall. In contrast, positive experiences, short of million-dollar moments are usually registered through standard memory systems and thus need to be held in conscious awareness for 10 to 20 seconds for them to really sink in. In sum, your brain is like Velcro for the negative experiences and Teflon for the positive ones. In terms of Buddhist practice, the brain's negative bias feeds all the hindrances and it saps motivation for right effort. It also undermines the cultivation of wholesome qualities by downplaying good lessons and experiences, by undermining their storage, and by making it harder to recollect positive states of mind so we can find our way back to them. This is an article written by um, Rick Hansen and uh, Rick Mendius, two relatively local. One's a psychologist, one's a uh, neurologist, so there discussing the neuroscience of the brain, favorite topic in Dharma circles these days, it seems. So we're jumpy and nervy, are we? I've heard, you know, Dharma talks where the teacher has said, so um, can you just, you know, hands up who can remember something nice about yourself, something that you did that was a good thing to have done and and, you know, very slowly, very with great difficulty, the odd memory services as an example of this kind of thing. And yet, you know, tell us a few things you've done that's not quite good enough. Barrages of information as you've been exploring yourselves. So we have this kind of wiring. It's how we've survived so prolifically. We're also, as Heather was telling us the other night, subject to a very peculiar sentence of, aging and pain and dying at the end of it, and who knows when. So there's a great deal of uh, insecurity in our reality, built in, and we're very sensitive. So actually, our strategy, as usual, as we know, is to fix this predicament best we can over and over. to apparently make things a little less insecure, less threatening. And then something out of the blue comes along and shakes up that strategy. So your Rinpoche says, the world can seem marvelously convincing until death comes along and evicts us from our hiding place. <coughs> so um, we actually are way more prepared for flight and or fight than we are for its opposite. Be. Be here. Stay here. So when you sit to do this, we discover that actually it's incredibly difficult, as you see. We would rather do anything than simply just be here. We spend endless hours trying, imagining, doing anything else. And even when we're being here, It's hard work to be here. We're going against this wiring, actually. So we have to employ unbelievable amounts of support to do this simple but counterintuitive thing of being here, like understanding, like reading, like 
downloading talks, like going to retreats, like asking other people, like being in groups, like encouraging, like trying to remember why, taking refuges over and over, bringing up kindness. There are an enormous amount of things to do to help us because we need this help to do this simple thing because it's counter our wiring. Thich Nhat Hanh described this behavior as being like a frog. You put a frog on a plate, and in a very short time it leaps right off. And so this is like the mind, the monkey mind, or the puppy mind. And we're attempting to make it less like a frog. (laughs) Initially. It actually learns this lesson. One, um, all, all spiritual endeavors, guides, inspiration, has the same intention as all of these other efforts we have to apply to help us find our way through this tendency of struggle and resistance because there is otherness to this. There is relief. There is ease and space and love and freedom. But because it's so not so readily accessible to our jumpy minds and nervy systems. All these teachers come along and attempt to help us. And the Buddha was one of this, the most thorough. He was. We have amazing records, of course, 45 years of teaching, volumes and volumes, not just volumes of information, but incredibly detailed, refined, subtle, really sophisticated explanations about how our mind works, as you know. And a few of us have referenced, and I will again tonight, one of his most thorough teachings, the Satipatthana Sutta, The Foundations of Mindfulness. And tonight I want to talk to um, a couple of the teachings in this sutta, and I'm going to link them together. They are the, um, well, it's the fourth of the foundations. The first is awareness of the body, what I spoke about a week ago. The second is awareness of the pleasant and unpleasant or neutral aspects of any experience. The third is the state of our minds. Guy was referring to that somewhat on Saturday night. And the fourth um, is the contemplation on the dharmas. And of these, the dharmas, I mean, I won't even go into the long explanations about what this word means, but the contemplation on actually the mechanisms of how our mind works in terms of the way the Buddha saw the mind. And there are several sections in this section of the Satipatthana Sutta. So this is the Satipatthana fourth foundation, numbers one and four, if you care about these things. So the first of these is to be aware of the hindrances. And Sally talked about these hindrances last week. And I'm going to refer to them some more. And the, the other one I want to speak about are the factors of awakening. The factors of awakening help us abandon the hindrances. They are like the aid that removes the obstacle, which is a hindrance. These um, dhammas, if you like, this fourth foundation, aren't so much objects of meditation, the way where the breath would be, or the 32 parts of the body, or and so on and so forth, even Vedna, even states of mind. They are more... Um, as I said, terms of reference for how we do our meditation practice. So whatever we may be noticing, whatever we may be being aware of, whatever objects we have, these are ways of um, recognizing how we're doing with that, if you like. Obstacles, hindrances, barriers, things in the way. Often called coverings. Subsumed also in the three called kilesas or coverings, greed, hatred and delusion. If we 
have in our awareness at any moment any one of these obstacles, and very often there's more than one, then we are actually unable to see clearly. We are blinded, as it were. Our vision is not clear. Our vision is what we're developing, the ability to see the truth of how things are, and we don't see it purely when these are in the way, as Sally explained. The factors of awakening are similar aspects of our experience, but they facilitate seeing clearly. They reveal the confusion or the disturbance or the distortion of a hindrance, and they allow us to see it for what it is and allow us then to see more clearly whatever it is that we're experiencing. They are like the opposite of, a, of an obstruction. The best word we have for that is help, something that helps us, a facilitator, if you like, an uncovering. These hindrances, greed or desire, aversion or ill will, negativity, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, and doubt, are described by the Buddha as, in description of seeing, in the simile, and he speaks in similes so much, it's like imagining that you're looking in a bowl of water as a mirror, at an image of yourself. And when hindrances are present, you don't see an image of yourself how it really is. It's distorted by the water in different conditions, depending on the hindrance. And he compares the first one, the one of uh, wanting or desire, as um, water that's got color in it, dye in it. The very equivalent in modern language is looking through rose-colored glasses and seeing things look definitely much rosier than they really are, a distortion. The description of looking in, looking, expecting a mirror image, having it distorted by the second one, ill will, it's boiling. So it's bubbling. There is reflection, but it's quite disturbed. The third one is um, looking at if they're sinking and dull and sloth and torpor, water with algae in it, slimy, sludgy. Slimy and sludgy? You know what that feels like. Um, If there's agitation, worry, it's as if the water has got lots of wind blowing across it, so it's all moved, not from the inside, its own boiling inside itself, but just disturbed. And the fifth one, doubt, is it's all full of mud. So, you know, there's no light coming out of it. It's thick, muddy. The way the Buddha described that we work with these things, and we'll see how the seven factors do this for us, is so brilliant, so simple. He often likened himself to a physician. Diagnosis... Cure, prevention. So that's what we need to do with these hindrances. I'm going to be reading some from this book that we've also been referring to, Satipatthana by the monk Analayo. He says, the Buddha says, this is the diagnosis and the um, cure and the prevention. And I'm just going to use the first one, sensual desire. There is, if sensual desire is present in you, practitioner, you know there is sensual desire in me. If it's not present in you, you know there is no sensual desire in me. And you know how unarisen sensual desire can arise how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how future arising of this removed sensual desire can be prevented. So, yes, the diagnosis is seeing it, recognizing what it is. And the cure, though, which is where the progress happens, is understanding its cause and therefore avoiding its cause in future. So it's a much more um, sophisticated 
developed approach than the knowing of it. Knowing of it is necessary as a first step. But understanding how it works is the point of this aspect of this sutta. Hmm. I'll read this again, even though you've probably had it read to you already on this retreat. Just to remind us that Buddha said this. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them there is cultivation of the mind. The Buddha said, with this practice of these hindrances, to know when the the hindrance is present, and it's described like this, like, for instance, distortion of view, we know that, also to know when it's absent. But we're wired to know when it's present. We're not so wired to know when it's absent. So we really need to pay attention to the noticing its absence. The ease, the spaciousness when it's not there. And to just, in general, notice, oh, no, I'm not restless right now. It's not that accessible, or we just don't think of it very often. But where we can notice it is when we have been restless and it passes. But we so easily skip to the next something. But to stay enough to notice it now no longer with us is actually a very crucial part of our practice. I've been mentioning this numbers of times with people in these last few days. And now how does this feel? Recognize that state. So the Buddha described the absence of these similarly as he described the presence of them. But he described the absence of these in different terms. The absence of desire, he said, imagine that you have been living completely indebted to somebody. And now you have, your fortunes have changed and now you no longer owe anything to anybody. Free of all debt, independent. Like what you do isn't somebody else's. You're not working to pay off your whatever it may be. Freedom from debt. Ill will. The um, absence of ill will is like you've been sick for a long time and you're well again. I don't know if anybody you've ever been sick for a long time and are well again, but the relief of that. It's quiet. It's sort of normal to be well again, but when you've been sick for a while and you feel better, such a beautiful feeling. Dullness, sloth and torpor, algae in the water. He said the absence of that, it feels like you've actually been in jail. You've been restricted. You haven't had space, and now you're, you have space. No longer are you in jail. Restlessness and worry, he said, it's rather like having been a slave. Hard to imagine for us these days in this land what that must be like. But it's the absence of slavery when you've been enslaved. And every time he says this, he doesn't say just the absence of being enslaved. He says, when you have been. The contrast. And the last one, doubt, is you've been wandering lost in the desert. And now you're home. And the safety of that. And the relief of that. Now that one is one maybe we can imagine. Maybe we can imagine all of them. But just that confusion and endless, I don't know, I just don't know. And then like, oh yeah, I recognize this. My homeland. The confidence. The thing about these hindrances, of course, is, and and as we become more um, familiar with the workings of our mind, and as our mind sees more clearly, we see more and more subtle layers of all these things. It's not like we get it and that's it, no longer there. We may no longer be, you know, so outrageously angry or so inflamed and so on, but they're just there, sneakily there more. So this is an endless discovery. Here's an example of um, not recognizing these more subtly. 
the key is, of course, the diagnosis. If you have no diagnosis, you're completely caught in them, as you understand. But this is a little example, and I want to read this one to you. In the time of the Buddha, with his wise monks, this discourse reports the monk Anuruddha, one of his most skilled and learned practitioners, complaining to his friend Sariputta, the very wisest of his monks, that despite concentrative attainments, unshaken energy, well-established mindfulness, he was unable to break through to full realization. So he's having this Dharma discussion with his fellow monk. In reply, Sariputta says, pointing out to Anuruddha, that his boasting of concentration attainments was nothing but a manifestation of conceit. And his unshaken energy was simply restlessness. And his concern about not yet having awakened was just worrying. Helped by his friend to recognize these as hindrances, Anuruddha was soon able to overcome them and achieve realization. (laughs) Even there, they were sneaking in there. Because when not seen, they're real. They're completely our reality and true. How we, well, as I've said it, we know this, to look and to see that a hindrance is present is the beginning of our mindfulness practice. Is it working? And so I'm going to talk about the factors of awakening, which are how we become free of these things. There are seven of these factors. Many of you know them, have heard them at least discussed in this way. I'll list them and I'm going to describe and some of my experience of them, the way I relate to them. First one, without which nothing ever will happen in our development of awakening at all. Mindfulness. Second one, investigation. Dhamma vichaya. First one, sati, as we've been saying. Third one, Effort, virya, joy, piti, rapture, tranquility, pasadi, concentration, samadhi, equanimity, upeka. So, number one, mindfulness, what we're doing all the time, what we're attempting to grow continuously all the time. There are some ways you've heard us describe it. There are acronyms and so on. A few ways I want to describe my way of seeing mindfulness practice. I don't know if I said this in my last talk. I didn't check to listen. Did I talk about um, Sharon Salzberg talking to the scholar monk who'd been a monk all his life and asking him what all the teachings of the Buddha were? Did I tell you this to you last time? She was there practicing in Burma and there was a man who'd been a monk since a child, an elderly man who was also a scholar and one of these who could quote chapter and verse of whichever sutta or any of the teachings of the Buddha, so familiar, which is impressive when you think there's 36 volumes and I don't know how volumes of commentaries on the teachings that he knew so familiarly. And she said to him, if you could take all of this and put it in one sentence, like what's... What's it? Like, What's the essence of the teachings of the Buddha? And he said, know what you're doing. This is the essence of mindfulness. A way that Utejaniya, who we've spoken to you about, describes it, he says, two minds. There is the mind that is whatever it's doing, thinking or worrying or whatever it's doing, but then there's the mind that knows, the knower. Alan Watts says, we're developing being a courteous audience. When you're the audience and something's happening, you know what's happening, but you're in the audience. There's some perspective about it. Suzuki Roshi says, a soft readiness. One of the ways I've described to a number of people, and I see it myself, is mindfulness is developing, there's two ways I'm going to mention, um, being on the couch is the courteous audience stance on the couch watching the TV show 
What happens in our direct experiences, we watch the show, which is our life, playing out before us. But pretty regularly, every so often, we get sucked inside the TV. And if it's, you know, if it's a theater, which is a little more sophisticated way of imagining it, we rush down there and we're on stage and we're acting along with the actors, which of course is our life that we're seeing here. And we're playing our part and we're actively hating the person who's the enemy and we're loving the, the one who we're supposed to fall in love with and all of that. We're doing it. But we've forgotten to know that we're doing it because we're involved. We're developing this other mind that knows that that what's happening, that we're wanting or loving or upset or criticizing. We're staying on the couch and not getting sucked into the TV. But of course, our real experience is into the TV, onto the couch, into the TV, onto the couch, back and forth. And when the more juicy things or the more personal, dramatic, we get sucked in there and we lose mindfulness. We lose knowing what's happening as it's happening. Another way I like to see this and have talked to people about this is we're developing this mindfulness, the couch you know, audience aspect of ourselves, this other mind, wise overview mind. Um, it's like we're developing our grandmother nature. And our other nature, our one mind, is our child. That is excited, that is bored, that is upset, that is whatever it is. And the child doesn't know it's doing it. The same way Carol's brother's dog doesn't know that it's just endlessly chasing after every possible smell. He doesn't know that. He just is doing it mindlessly. If the grandmother is there, the grandmother is able to witness this behavior, love this behavior, but realize, oh, this child is now getting hungry. This child now needs to be picked up. It's fallen over and hurt itself, is aware. One of our teachers, one of our colleague teachers who some of you know well, Gil Fronsdahl, he says, as we develop this mindfulness, we are prematurely aging. We're becoming grandmothers. Instead of the children that we are when we're in our TVs, all caught up, all involved. So we're developing this knowing as we are living our lives, knowing it too simultaneously. What we do as we know what's happening, we don't just hang back and sort of vaguely know, we actually apply some curiosity to what's happening. So we really know, we don't just sort of look at, we are interested in what's happening. This is the second one, often translated as investigation, Dhamma Vichaya. I don't like this investigation. I, for a long time, thought investigation, and so I practiced in this way, was... Um, collecting information, like a detective trying to solve some kind of problem, some crime, getting something because I needed something to get something. It's like I tried very hard to accumulate. It's actually less than that. It's not, I don't like the word investigation. I like the word interest. When you're interested in something, you're not doing it for something. You do it because you're interested. You may end up getting something as a result, but you're, you're further back than investigation to solve a problem or solve a crime. You're simply there because you're fascinated. You're not doing it to get something. The way you've heard this, maybe you've heard this, and I love this because I like to dance when I can. When you dance, you don't dance to get across the other side of the dance floor. You just dance to dance because you like to dance. And so you're interested because you're interested, not because you're trying to figure it out. It's different. And it's more innocent. And it's more the way children are interested. And little kids aren't kind of like, especially when they're tiny and they drive you nuts and they're two and a half and they go, why, mommy, why, why, why? It's not that they want you to actually give them an answer. They're not looking for answers. They're just curious. They can't control their curiosity. And they know that why is one of those words that you know, means I'm curious, I'm curious. There's an innocent curiosity. That is the quality of the second of these factors of awakening. Innocent curiosity. Wonder, awe, is possible when there's this open curiosity. When uh, in, a few, in the beginning of the retreat, a couple of us mentioned acronyms. 
we haven't. I don't know if any, I know much has been spoken since, but one of the acronyms about this um, mindfulness is RAIN, R-A-I-N. R is the one that stands for sati or mindfulness. Recognize. This would be the diagnosis as regards to the hindrance. R-A-I-N. The I of RAIN is interest. This applies to the second one. Investigation, interest, curiosity. Relax, observe, allow is one that another of our colleagues uses. Observe is the second one. Owl is mine, and W is the second one. Wonder. thing about being curious is if we do not have the first mindfulness with us, when we are curious, we can easily get involved. We can easily get sucked into. And we no longer have the ability to realize what we're discovering. So it isn't just pure investigation that, well, I wouldn't say just pure investigation. It isn't the kind of interest with which we want to become completely involved. It's an open Open curiosity, but still maintaining being on the couch. Still maintaining knowing that we're interested. Interest without that mindfulness can completely consume us, can completely involve us, completely carry us away. We can get completely identified with it. Meaning, it's all about me and it really matters and I love this and I don't love this. We need to have mindfulness and interest together. When we do... We're present, we know, we apply this curiosity, we get familiar with what's happening. Intimate is a word. What happens is we also need to keep on doing it. The third one is virya, courage, effort. Somebody was asking that question this morning. What about effort and what about being? I think it was over here, it was you. What about uh, the doing part of efforting and then the relaxing, open receptivity, this whole piece. I want to mention some of this here. Virya. Um, we, we often, well, may you, may you, may, you may well have heard people say uh, the word, uh, and translate this as the word courage, something to do with the heart. I like the translation of the word willingness. There's a kind of giving ourselves to the thing, to the practice, to the being present, to whatever it is you're wanting to get to know. But there is, um, it's kind of like the, the uh, fuel that keeps the whole thing ticking along. It's like the wind under the wings of your practice. And one of our colleagues uses a word which I like when I've been thinking about it recently. I've been, I heard him say this recently, is enthusiasm. Enthusiasm for practice. And there's a couple of things about enthusiasm which I like as being part of how we do this efforting of practice. When we're enthusiastic about something, we actually, there's some, um, something about the thing that we're enthusiastic about that's inspiring to us, that we give ourselves to it because it's, it's somehow a good thing to do. So there's some aspect of its value or worthiness that we honor and respect. That's why we have enthusiasm for it. So there's an element there of uh, inspiration or appreciation or in, of some kind of worthiness, which we need to hold our practice in this way in order to remain enthusiastic with it. Then there's an aspect of being enthusiastic about applying yourself to something which has uh, in it that it's, there's a sense of it's doable, like it's not so easy to be really enthusiastic about doing something when it's like climb the sheer north face of the Eiger, for instance. It's like, oh my God, that's pretty daunting. We're not that enthusiastic. But when it's doable, we think, yeah, I can see my way this. I could do that. It's doable. There's a sense of confidence that I actually have the ability to do this thing and this thing is doable. So there needs to be that sort of sense of the possibility of it, the you know, usefulness of it, the uh, accessibility of it. 
and in your own sense of self-respect and sense of confidence. We don't have any sense of our own worthiness at all. We just, you know, we, we give up before we get started. It's hopeless, I'm helpless, I'm never going to get this together. There isn't any of the virya that's needed, the courage, the willingness. We need to have a certain sense of self-worth and worth in what we're doing, the worthwhileness of what we're doing. Another aspect of giving ourselves to something, when we do it enthusiastically, is um, enjoyment. I mean, I actually like it. Somewhere, and I don't know where, so I'm quoting somebody else, quoting the Buddha, saying, when we do this practice, it's, we, it can feel like, and it needs to feel like for it to keep going, like an elephant in the hot day sun having a cool dip in the lake. And somebody else has said, and I've heard them say, it's like children going out to play. Well, I don't know if you feel like the meditation hall is a playground. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to come in here and play some more. Or if it's not so enthusiastically that you're meeting your next sitting, and if there's a lot of steep uphill grinding about to happen, you know, going in with your climbing gear all attached and, okay, I can do it again. It's not really the kind of enthusiasm that's going to be maintainable or sustainable or pleasurable or freeing, actually. There's another aspect of this, too, which I think is very important to hold in mind, and that is that we need, it needs to be realistic, because if we're very idealistic, if we're over-enthusiastic, unrealistically enthusiastic, we're idealistic, and the bar is too high. And there's a big problem when the bar is too high, because we'll be failing, won't we? You know, it's a total setup for judging and failing and frustration, and, and then the opposite of enthusiasm. We can either give up or think, oh, no, I'm never going to do it, and then we're even straining even more. Definitely not a cool pool in the midday sun, more midday sun, I'd say. So some realisticness about our effort level, our energy level, so that we are applying ourselves realistically in what's doable, not in some untenable, inappropriate strain. This aspect is what keeps us from grim striving and headaches and self-blame and loathing. Again, if we don't have the first one, sati, mindfulness with us, when we're applying our energy, we won't know that we're straining or that we're striving or that we're getting a headache or that we're judging ourselves. We don't realize that part because we are just simply judging ourselves. And so we're then, oh, I should be doing this. Shouldn't I be doing this? But when we have sati with us, it's like, oh, oh, I see that this really, oh, that's way too intense. Well, that's way too slack. We won't recognize the quality of our energy if we don't have sati, mindfulness. And there's one other piece of this virya, courage, willingness, enthusiasm to do this practice, which Sally mentioned this morning in uh, the end of our sitting after breakfast. And this, I would say, is probably, has come to be my dearest friend in all of this. I am an enthusiastic type, but I can tend to be over-enthusiastic and get tired, judge myself, part of the driving force for a striver's mentality, is this steady, steady persistence. This is the key. They're all key, but everything we say is key. This is key, too. <laughs> This doably, not idealistically, enthusiastic, not over-enthusiastically, enjoying, curious, keeping on going. Not fits and starts. Utejaniya says, it's not a hundred-yard dash. This is a marathon. This is a lifelong marathon. You don't have to get, if you go too fast, forget it. If you stop, forget it. It's the hare and the tortoise thing. This is tortoise. Gently, gently, patiently, doably, kindly, but keep on going. 
And this persistence or perseverance sometimes builds what we call momentum. And this momentum is the reason why it's so valuable is that it grows as a life on its own and it then carries us on. And then we don't have to be keeping applying. It's called launching effort. So this is very important that we keep that steady being present and knowing, two minds, curious, keep going, keep going. And then we find, and I know many of you know this, that somehow the practice starts doing it for us. It unfolds. So the beginning of these three are the ones that we actually do. Mindfulness, curiosity, keep on going. And what happens is these other four, because we have seven here, start to take off on their own. What happens when we are steadily, realistically, ongoingly curious? It starts to get fun. It starts to feel like this, this is amazing. This is, this is fascinating. Somebody today was just like, it's so fascinating. When we say fascinating, we smile. There's something right about it, good about it. We get easily enthusiastic. It gets to be more like children going out to play. And that happens. And that holds us and calls our interest. And then there's a little more pleasure, a little more delight, joy. The fourth one, piti, which is experienced in all kinds of different ways for people, many different kinds. This physical pity, strange energies in the body. Sometimes I get this feeling like when I get really there, really absorbed, interested, fascinated. I sometimes feel like my body's getting all torqued around like this. Some people feel things in their heads and energy releasings in their bodies and so on. There could be a feeling of lightness, of buoyancy. Some people feel literally that they're lighter, physically lighter. All different many manifestations. And anything you've had and you've mentioned it to a teacher... Many times you'll hear them say, oh, that's right, that's a manifestation of piti. But there is this inner confidence, and uh, that gets to be more interesting than the fantasies that we prefer- previously were preferring. So it's not so difficult to not fantasize. It's, more, it's easier to be interested in our inner reality. It gets to be more pleasant. This joy... This feeling good, feeling right, feeling confident keeps us doing it. And as we keep doing it and we keep staying and we keep looking, the mind gets, it just keeps on, instead of running around all over the place, the flight and fight response that we're wired for starts (coughs) being changed at this point. And this pleasure, this feeling of goodness reassures us. And as we're reassured, we calm down. We relax this fight or flight. This jumpy, nervy system starts to relax, starts to become nourished, starts to become easy, less guarded. And as this happens, calmness happens. It just happens. And calm, quieting happens. The mind settles, stays much more. doesn't need to be rushing. The system, the physical body, this posture calms down. Pain can release itself. Or if there is pain, it's not the struggle. The struggle around the pain releases and so on. When we're calm like this, the mind getting really settled, it'll become more... The mind, our attention, will be more biddable. It will do what we want it to do. It's not struggling. It's not frantic. It's not rushing. It's not looking for something else and making strategies about things. And so it's more available When it's available, it is trainable. One of the descriptions of the progress of this practice is know the mind, train the mind, free the mind. The trained mind is the mind that is collected or gathered. I think of it as just well-behaved. The mind then will do what we want it to do. It can look. I'm going to look at my experience in terms of if there's any hindrances here. And I get to see that because the mind will do what I want it to do more when it's more trained. Or I can look at my practice in terms of these awakening factors. 
And it knows how to do that and it will be able to do that because it's well behaved now. It becomes a useful thing instead of a tyrant that's thinking things that we don't want it to think and making us think really inappropriate reactive things. At least still it does that, but nothing like to the same degree it did when it was less trained. Collected. A friend. The mind becomes a friend. This is samadhi, the mind that's shaped, that's trained. And with concentration, samadhi, gathered, collected mind, inappropriate responses and struggles are so much more absent that what comes sooner or later is a state of, of open steadiness. Whatever may occur, it's okay. I have a little quote from Krishnamurti somewhere here. Do you know my secret, said Krishnamurti? Do you want to know my secret? I don't mind what happens. Simple as that. That's equanimity. How do we actually put this into practice? This is, you'll recognize this. This is the Buddha's words again. If the mindfulness awakening factor is present in him. So this is the first of these. This is the Buddha's description about how you do this. If the mindfulness awakening factor is present in the monk, he knows there is the mindfulness factor in me. If it is not present, he knows there is no mindfulness awakening factor in me. He knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen Mindfulness awakening factor can be perfected by development. So he doesn't just know presence and absence, which he does, you can, you do, a lot of you, but also its causes and how to maintain them. Just the same as the hindrances. So let's say a hindrance, a hindrance attack. Well, let's just say hindrance of restlessness is here. Know it. Diagnosis, restlessness. Stay with it. So you connect with it, vitaka, vichara is the staying. Sustain your awareness with it. Explore it a little. Be intimate with it. Be interested in it. Second one, interest. Keep going. Third one, keep going. Keep going. Keep being with it. If it's here, stay with it. Stay with it. Not jumpy, not trying to fix it. Persistently keep on caring about it. What will happen? Restlessness. You stay with it, what will happen? You start noticing where it is in the body. You start noticing its grip on the mind. You start realizing, oh, there's aversion to it as well. You, need, you stay there. There's aversion. Keep looking. Stay oh, aversion, then it's like, I'm actually worried about it. I'm worried about this. Keep looking. You may find, oh, it's because there's this pain in my neck. And I don't want this pain in my neck, so I want to move. I want the sitting to be over so I can get rid of this pain in my neck. I have aversion to actually an unpleasant sensation, and I'm worrying about it. And I look at it. It's not that I just don't like it. I'm actually worried that this pain in my neck is never going to go away. There's something wrong with me. So there's some fear. Stay with that. Oh, there's fear here. Stay with that. There may be coming a memory associated with that fear. Oh, that's what's here. It all starts unraveling in front of your very eyes. Your job is to stay. Keep looking. You see how this leads to this. You see the cause of this because of this, because of this. Keep staying there. Keep looking. Oh, where's that restlessness now? There isn't so much. Now there's real interest. Yeah, there's fear. There's, oh, then there's like, oh, you poor thing. Of course you're afraid. There's some kindness. Look at this whole changing show. The restlessness wasn't steady. It shifted to something else and something else and something else. It reveals itself. It reveals its composite nature. It reveals its conditions. We do this over and over and over, and we begin to understand the causes of the restlessness in this case was this situation. When we discover the state without restlessness or aversion or whatever, fear, 
Oh, it's subsided. Notice that. Oh, the freedom of that. Notice that. The ease, no longer in jail, no longer wandering in the desert, lost. That confidence, that pleasure. Notice that. Stay present. Notice that. Freedom in that moment. I've just described what Carol described the other night. First, second, and third noble truths. Struggle, want it to be different, don't like this feeling, of pain in my neck, so I'm restless. And then it releases. Third noble truth. Another way of seeing these, and I love this way, these factors, mindfulness is necessary first. Without it, nothing will happen. Then there are these other six. Interest, continued interest, sustained interest, the effort of it, and joy. Put them all together in one lump, on one side, energizing. And then calm, concentration, samadhi, and equanimity, cool. They are, one is energizing, one is calming and soothing. Put them like this on a seesaw, on a plank. You just put them on a plank on the ground, there they are. There's nothing you can do about it. But if you lift this plank up and put mindfulness underneath it, like a little fulcrum, now you actually have some choice. Now they are like a balance. Depending on how you are, how your energy is, what's going on, you can increase the energizing ones or you can increase the calming ones. You can work with the state of your mind. If you're becoming, and this is where this teaching overlaps with the hindrances, let's say, with the hindrances, I'll remind you of them, wanting something, not wanting something. Lots of energy, so much to the point that you're restless with it. Calm, so much to the point that you're dull. And doubt, the fifth one. The energizing energy that can become too much and out, you know, restless needs to be calmed down. So if you look in terms of the energizing factors of awakening or the calming, when you're feeling agitated, you need the calm ones, calm, concentration, equanimity. When you're feeling dull, sleepy, sloth and torpor, you need the energizing ones, curiosity, mindfulness, curiosity, happiness, some joy, some lightness of heart, effort, energy. So the way we are practicing and our states of... We look at our states of mind and we can apply this, um, not quite evaluation, but we can check how is my energy with whatever it is I'm experiencing. Maybe noticing the breath, maybe noticing sounds, maybe noticing a free flow of energy, but it's kind of getting dull and vague and sort of boring. When we begin to get familiar with seeing it in terms of these awakening factors, we can decide if we need some energizing energy or if we need some calming energy. Relax. Calm down. If we get too caught up, too stressed out, too grim, we can relax a little. We can be more open, more balanced, equanimous, and so on. So the antidotes to the hindrances are often available through these awakening factors. If we're in doubt, if the hindrance is doubt, I don't know, we're lost in the desert, I don't know, I'm not sure, don't know which way to go now, what should I do next, I don't understand. We need to have a little more investigation, curiosity. Are you feeling at ease here? Are you feeling stressed out here? Be curious, add add some interest. And so on. Any, I could go into great length over any one of these. Any one of these is a good talk. In fact, I think I'm going to do a talk about how happiness leads to calm. Just that is an, and the whole topic is fascinating. Anyway, it's not necessary to abandon what you're doing, your practice as it's as it's unfolding. As well, look at it from time to time in terms of energizing factors, curiosity, keeping going, keeping two minds happening. Am I on the couch here? Am I caught up? Is there some playfulness here? Is there some pleasure in this? Where's the pleasure in this? Oh, yeah, my body's quite comfortable. That's quite pleasant. 
Or am I needing some calm here? Are the hindrances present? Am I wanting something other? Am I not liking what's happening? Am I sleepy? Am I worrying? Am I not sure here? Confused? Just check every so often your practice in terms of these things. Are they there along with you as you're doing whatever you're doing? Or are these awakening factors are there with you? Or if you notice a hindrance along there with you, you may then realize, oh, I need to just antidote it with a little of that. They, they come together, they play together. And as we're all saying, look at your practice from time to time in terms of hindrances, in terms of awakening factors, and look at your practice in terms of attitude. If your attitude is one of wanting, your hindrance is present. As soon as you know it, mindfulness has come, liberated you from that hindrance. It's, you've avoided it. It's subsided. Over and over and over. Mindfulness is the key to all of it. The knowing, the grandmother, the two minds. Then the hindrance just simply becomes one more thing to notice, one more object. It's such an elegant, brilliant system this Buddha thought of. Take what's happening, take the stance of the two minds and see it for something, for just another fascinating explanation of how we are human. And you're not caught in it anymore in that moment. It's amazing. To finish with a couple of quotes, François Fenelon, a Frenchman from 1600, said, As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our hearts a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We're not worse than we were. On the contrary, we're better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. And this is by one of my favorite poets, Rainier Maria Rilke. We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it's not against us. If it has terrors, there are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them, and only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that are the last, at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you mustn't be frightened if a sadness rises before you, larger than you've ever seen, if an anxiety like light and cloud, shadows, move over your hands and everything that you do. You must realize that something has happened to you. Life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hands and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any miseries or depressions? For after all, you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside you.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.